0: all right good morning ladies and gentlemen so i told you guys at the end of the liturgy that it's my fault that we are uh, in a it was crowded here today so you probably want to know what the reason why it's my fault i'll tell you at the end (laughs) i don't want to give it away too soon i don't want to give it away too soon all right so welcome to all the new faces that are here joining us for the first time this is your first time here this is a little something that we call the well, and the reason why we call this the well is because we believe that where we are right now, just as it was in biblical times, what the well was, was an ordinary place where extraordinary things happened because that's where Jesus would meet people. Our church started on the Sunday of the Samaritan Woman, which is the story where Jesus went to an ordinary place, a well, and he met an ordinary woman at an ordinary place, but her life was never the same again. Her life was transformed, and that's what we believe our church is, and that's what we are called to be. And the process by which that transformation takes place, or kind of the markers along the way, is represented by our ten core values as a church. And that's what we've been looking at for the past several weeks, is what our core values as a church are and what we believe and who we believe we are called to be. I said it before and I'll say it again, we don't believe that God has called us to be an ordinary church, but to be an extraordinary church doing extraordinary things. So therefore, we have to raise an extraordinary bar for ourselves a little bit higher norm our our core values represented by this mountain and i'm not gonna make you write them down today all right but let's go a little verbal okay because i know we got a lot of new faces so i'll give you guys the benefit of that let's go verbal recap over our 10 core values our first core value at st tim's is limitless acceptance, limitless acceptance. this is, everyone has to know this one because we've now mentioned it so many weeks in a row is that we believe that we accept every we are the body of christ so when we see somebody in front of us we accept them the way Christ would limitlessly regardless of what they look like or what they sound like or anything like that limitless acceptance is the foundation of the church second core value at St. Tim's is (laughs) second core value at St. Tim's is Authentic authentic community which is that we reject superficiality in our relationship with God and the same way we reject superficiality in our relationship with one another we don't want to just have a superficial relationship between us and our father or between us and our brothers and sisters. And we believe in that very strongly. Third core value here at St. Tim's is transformational, transformational communal, worship. communal worship, which is that we are not just a country club or we're not just a group of people that get together because we got nothing better to do on Sunday mornings. We gather around the real presence of God in our midst. Okay, We gather around the real presence of God in our midst every time we meet. And that presence of God is what unites us and transforms us, okay? For a couple of parents who walked in, okay, just in case you, you're wondering, there's a room right to the left. It's called the Renoir room. That's available. If anyone wants to hang out there, you're most certainly welcome, okay? Fourth core value here at St. Timothy's and St. Athanasius Church is... Passionate pursuit of God. The voices are getting weaker as we're going up the mountain, okay? See, we lose people on the way up the mountain. That's what happens, is as you climb, we lose people. Passionate pursuit of God, which is we don't just worship God on Sundays. We worship God everywhere we go and everything that we do. We seek to worship God passionately when we read the Bible, when we pray, at work, at home, whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. We don't want to be Sunday Christians. We don't want to be Easter and Christmas Christians. We want to be people who passionately pursue God in everything that we do. And hopefully, that passionate pursuit of God will take us to the peak of the mountain, which is... Christ-like integrity. Very good. We gained a little strength there. All right, Christ-like integrity, which is that we seek to live lives where what we say matches what we do, and we don't just say all the things in the Bible and say verses in the Bible, but we really live in those verses to the best of our ability, in the same way that Christ did. Once we reach the pinnacle of the mountain, now we go back down the mountain and we start to bear fruit from the climb. And the first fruit, our sixth core value, is faith-filled vision. Faith-filled vision. Which is that we believe in a big God and we rely on that big God to do extraordinary things and we are more surprised when God does not do miracles for us than when he does. I'll share about this faith-filled vision at the end a little bit, a little something personal. Seventh core value. Now that we are filled with faith and we believe our God is a big God and he can do anything and nothing can stop our God, that's going to lead us to live what kind of lives? Irrational generosity, because we're going to give even when it doesn't make sense to give. We're going to give of our time, we're going to give of our money, we're going to give of our resources. And the people at work are going to say, why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. And we're going to say, well, in our world it does make sense, because in our world it truly is more blessed to give than to receive, and we believe that. And we're not just saying it's more blessed to give than receive, but we really believe it, and we show up by the way we give our time and our money. Eighth core value at St. Tim's this was last week it was our faithful stewardship of our talents and gifts and last week we talked about how we are all created so uniquely and so beautifully by God because God has a different thing that he wants each of us to contribute to his mission and whatever talents whatever gifts I have I consecrate them to God first we said we discover them and then we consecrate them to God to be used by him and that fits in with our next core value like the sequence as I told you guys wasn't planned by me but it was planned by God and the sequence is very important because once we discover our talents and our gifts and we consecrate them to God then we're ready for our ninth core value which we're going to talk about today which is a personal call to evangelism we believe that the call to evangelism and witnessing applies to us just as much as it did to the apostles in the early church, God will hold me accountable to its completion those are big words and when I first said those words, when back months ago when we were planning and we were brainstorming, this one people said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't, like, I don't feel as comfortable with this one. Why? Because which word here makes me feel uncomfortable? Accountable. accountable. I am accountable to its completion. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't go to the ends of the earth and I can't be responsible for, for every single person hearing the gospel. You may not be responsible for every single person hearing it, but you are responsible for your part in that process. We're going to talk about that today, and like I said, the foundation is what we said last week, how every one of us has different gifts, different talents, and that's going to tie into evangelism and witnessing. But we are not, we are not going to hear a commandment, like go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel and make disciples. We're not going to hear that and say that's for somebody else. Not here. And if that's who you are, as I said many times you are not gonna enjoy listening to my sermons you are gonna hate today because what I'm gonna say is those verses in the Bible If we really are the body of Christ and we said Acts chapter 2 is who we are not who we want to be who we are we are Acts chapter 2 church we are the same church just a few years later just some descendants of if that's who we are then the commandments that were given to them apply just as much to us maybe differently maybe they were Jerusalem maybe we're Arlington maybe they were Gentiles Maybe we are Americans. Maybe they were um, in uh, cities. Maybe we are in suburbs. Who knows what it's going to be? But the point is, is the commandment applies to us. Let me break that down and try to understand what that means. And just, I want everyone to clear their minds of any preconceived ideas about evangelism and witnessing and mission and all this kind of stuff. Clear your minds. Give me the next 30 to 40 minutes to make a case... For what I believe the Bible presents about witnessing and evangelism, and then make up your mind after. Okay. This topic is so important to us because you know that we're not an ordinary church here. All right. A lot of people say we're a mission church, and you know that I've rejected the phrase mission church, and I hate the phrase mission church because I don't think that there's such a thing as a mission church. Okay. A mission church is like saying a uh, a. Uh, uh, track runner, like if you're track, you run, if you're a fighting soldier, like there's no such thing as a non-fighting soldier, you know what I mean? And there's no such thing as a non-mission church. But let's let's go along the theme that, that we are, has something to do with mission. Why should we care about mission? Like let's answer that question very practically, like here we are right now, we have a nice little group amongst us right here, all the chairs are pretty much filled. Why should we care about adding more people? Like are not we having fun? Like we go on 5k runs together, we play softball, like we share coffee, like why should we care about mission? Let's just hang out with each other and like become really, really good friends. We'll do a lot of barbecues together. You know what I mean? Like we'll play softball, like we'll all get to know each other. It'd be like a family reunion every week. Why should we care about mission? Isn't it enough of a mission? To like build ourselves up spiritually and we'll try to like read the Bible and like memorize verses and isn't that enough of a mission? Why should I care about mission? In order to answer that question, let me ask you a question and you can help me out here with some parenting advice. Let's say I got two kids, okay? This is hypothetical. <laughs> Let's say I got two... No, this one really is hypothetical. Well, for the moment... Well. This this is hypothetical. Let's say I got two kids, all right, and my two kids are opposite in their obedience and behavior. Let's say one of them, okay, we'll make them both boys so that way no one thinks I'm talking about my kids, <laughs> okay. Well, older son always obeys, always obeys, and because he always obeys, he gets rewarded. Both kids know, hey, you do good in school, you get you know like we used to get monies per A, okay, like. Like a dollar per A, or whatever it is. Or we used to get Chuck E. Cheese coins, okay? That, as many A's as you get Chuck E. Cheese coins. So you get a dollar per A. And this kid, A, 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 and gets money. And this kid, other one, didn't like to get good grades. And she would always C's and B's. <laughs> I mean, he. <laughs> I promise it's hypothetical. All right, I'll make it a little personal. <laughs> And this second child, okay, doesn't like to study and never got any, any money. And then um, do your chores and you get, uh, uh, and we'll go and buy a new toy. And this one does the chores, we go buy a new toy. This one, I don't want to do my chores, doesn't get the toy. And every day... Okay, this part might be a little real. Every day, you know, at dinner time we eat dinner together and then the reward is you eat your dinner in a timely manner we go sit on the couch with dad we watch PTI together with some ice cream. Okay, This is, this is the reward. So whoever finishes we're gonna get to sit with dad on the couch, watch PTI, we eat ice cream together. One finishes, other one hard time and never finishes in time. And then let's say this is the consistent behavior and then one day something happens miracle happens to her him it <laughs> miracle to it all of a sudden this child obeys and dinner the child cleans the plate before this one so all of a sudden dad says hey this is great this is fantastic both kids obey." hey you know what says to the older son three bowls today three spoons And the older son says, No! I don't want it with us. And no, just me and you, don't give any to it. (laughs) And then the next report card comes, and it's time to hand out dollar bills, and this one gets the straight A's, and this one's got straight A's too, and the dad's about to give out both. This one says, No! I want that one to have any. That person doesn't deserve any. All for me and toys this person obeyed don't buy them anything and every time this person's about to get a reward this person throws a temper tantrum what's the problem of this person what would you say you're a parent this person has a problem what's their problem their problem is they don't like to share and from a very very young age if you have a sibling you should know that you must share not sharing is not acceptable especially the more siblings that you have. If I'm an only child, I can be kind of greedy, all right? Uh, no offense to any only children in the room, okay? But in general, I saw it with my own children. Once the second one came, the first one became less selfish because he had no other choice. He wasn't the only human being in the world. He had to learn how to share. Now imagine if you have, I know there's a Meta lady here saying he's got four kids, okay? Or the movie that I think of, Do you ever see Cheaper by the Dozen? Okay? In a house like that, if you don't share, you don't survive. In a household like that, if you got 12 kids, if you don't learn how to share, you can't survive. Sharing is an important principle for all of us to learn. Agree? There's a spiritual principle called evangelism, which is very similar to the concept of sharing. And what I want to do is I want to define what does evangelism mean because I think that a lot of us don't really understand what evangelism means and we have different ideas in our mind that to be an evangelist I've got to look like this. All right? And because we don't understand it, we put it over there as one of the commands for somebody else, not me. What does evangelism mean? If you get down to the root of the word evangelism or evangelist, what does the word mean? You want to know what it means? It means somebody who shares good news. That's what the word means. Evangelism means somebody who heard good news and decided to share that good news with somebody else. Evangelism doesn't mean going door to door and being a salesman and selling light bulbs or knives or Jesus. Evangelism doesn't mean standing on a corner and preaching from the Bible. Evangelism means... I heard something good, and I share it with somebody else. You know who's the best evangelist? The moms, the wives, when they go to the store and they find out something's on sale, this store has sale on meat, they become evangelists all over the place. Hey, giant has half off of the whatevers. Okay, That's evangelism. Evangelism just means I hear something that's nice, and I share it with others. Who is an evangelist in the Bible? Like, when you think, again, evangelism, we have these different ideas. But let's see, when God says evangelism, what's the picture of evangelism in the Bible? Like, what's the picture of an evangelist in the Bible? Who's an evangelist in the Bible? So, you start off with the four gospel writers. Those are called the evangelists. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of them seem like annoying salesmen kind of people. You know who was an evangelist even before they were? You know who the first evangelist was? John the Baptist? Before John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Huh? Who? Who'd you say? Jonah. Uh, in the New Testament. Let's say in the New Testament. Like, it was preaching the good news about Christ. Samaria. Saint Samaria. Samaria. Who? Samaria. Samaritan woman before Samaritan woman. Before Samaritan woman. Elizabeth before Elizabeth. Who? Saint Gabriel. Not Saint, but Gabriel. You know Gabriel, the, the angel, right? Because what did Angel Gabriel do? Angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 2 preached the good news of Christ. It's kind of a trick question because he wasn't the person I know, but it's. Luke chapter 2. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings. What's good tidings mean? I got good news for you people. I heard something good on the street, and I wanted to share it with you. I heard good tidings of great joy which would be to all people. that is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. That's why Gabriel's official title in the Coptic church, you know, or in, I should say in all the churches, Is the announcer of the good news. Or maybe like the Catholic Church taught us the word herald. You know that word, herald, hark, the herald angel sing? Okay, herald, what's that mean? It's somebody who's running down the street saying, you know, good news, good news, extra, extra, something or other. That's who Gabriel is. He wasn't pushy, he wasn't a salesman, he wasn't a theologian, he wasn't a nothing. He was somebody who said, hey guys, I got news for you. Christ the Savior is born. It's going to be great news for so many people. You know who else was evangelism? It was Jesus himself. Luke chapter 8 verse 1 now it came to pass afterward that he being Jesus went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. What I want you to see about evangelism is it's not annoying, it's not intrusive, it's not pushy, it's not offensive, it's not like intolerable. Maybe some evangelists today are all of those things but evangelism is none of those things. Was Archangel Gabriel like offensive to the shepherds they say why are you so offensive talking about religion to us he's like I'm not talking about religion I'm telling you good news people what's wrong with you I'm telling you great news same with Jesus he's going around saying I got good news for you guys kingdom of God is open to anybody who wants to come in that's not offensive It's good news it's offensive if you bring people bad news but why did good news become offensive all of a sudden I don't quite get it evangelism if I had to say definition equals sharing the good news now what's the goal of evangelism oftentimes because we don't understand the goal that's why we define it in the wrong way sometimes we say the goal is to bring others to Christ I'ma flip that I'ma say the goal is not to bring others to Christ but bring Christ to others see the difference Very important difference. Because if you believe that it's your goal to bring others to Christ, A, you'll fail. You will fail. You will not bring every single person you meet to Christ. In addition to being a failure, you will be quite annoying, probably. Okay? You will be offensive. You will be intrusive. But that's not our goal. Our goal is not to bring others to Christ, but to bring Christ to others. Can I bring every one of you to Christ? No. No. But can I bring Christ to every one of you? Absolutely. How? By the way I deal with you. By the smile on my face. By the way I look in your eyes. And I listen when you talk. By the way I live my life. By the way I let you walk in front of me and not cut in front of you. I can bring Christ like that's accomplishable. Right? See, bring others to Christ. You that's that's tough. And and that's too results oriented, that's never the way Christ was. Did Christ bring everyone to Christ? Like, even Christ didn't bring everyone to Christ. In fact, Christ, by the time he finished his mission, the majority of the people were not with him. Everyone left him, even his own people, said, we don't want to be with you. So even Jesus himself didn't bring everyone to Jesus. But he did bring Jesus to everyone he met. And that's our mission. To me, there's a big difference. This is the verse that we read today in the gospel I spoke about. After these things, Luke 10, 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. I want you to take that verse and I want you to go into work tomorrow and I want you to know that you are going before the face of the Lord. That's the mission, that you are going before the face of the Lord and you are preparing the way. For him to walk in. So my good morning, my how, hi, hi, how are you? My interactions with my coworkers is paving the path for Jesus to walk down that path and do whatever he wants to do. And maybe Jesus will come and encourage them. Maybe he'll come and rebuke them. Maybe he'll come and pick them up. Maybe he'll come and rattle their bell a little bit. I don't know what he's going to do. But I want to be an evangelist it means I'm walking knowing that Jesus is right behind me. And I'm laying the fountain, laying the road down for him to walk on that path. Let's apply it to ourselves. Can I bring all of Arlington to Christ? No. But can we bring Christ to all of Arlington? Oh, you better believe it. And you better believe that's our mission. You better believe we won't rest until we do that. And we will do whatever it takes. Like I said from the beginning, the tidal wave, we are going to be a tidal wave of Christ. And we are going to go everywhere that we can We're going to do everything that we can so that every single person in this city sees the hymn, and hears the good news. And whatever they do, they do. That's, That's none of our business. But we're going to bring the love of God to every person. And we're going to bring the kindness of God and the acceptance and the limitless acceptance of God to every single person that crosses our path. Why? Why should I? This seems like a lot of work. Why should I? two reasons that you watch carefully that in order that in, you must be an evangelist two reasons why you must be an evangelist you must number one to show appreciation for what God has given you. because if you truly appreciate the gift of God just like someone said with the Samaritan woman she was never commanded to go and preach but she appreciated the gift so much that she could not contain herself from telling every single person around her. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. If today, I'm up here, this thing is blowing up, and I'm getting text messages, and a text message says, congratulations, you just won the lottery. You just won 50 billion dollars. What's the chances that I say, and I go on with my day, and I don't share that with anybody around? What's the chances of that? No chance. What am I gonna be doing? I'm going to jump around like a crazy person. I'm going to be screaming at the top of my lungs. I'm going to knock at every door in this hotel and tell them I just won $50 billion. And I'm going to be the happiest person in the world. I'm going to be jumping and screaming. I'm going to be treating everybody, maybe, okay? Lunch on meat, like whatever it is. The whole world is going to know today that I won because I found something really, really cool and i got to tell the whole wide world. If I kept my mouth shut, what does that say? If I read the text message, and I say nothing, what does that say? One or two things. A, I don't believe it. Yeah, right, put it away. If I don't say nothing, means I don't believe it, or I don't appreciate it. Yeah, what's 50 million? If I had 50, 600 bazillion, eh, what's 50 million? If someone said, hey, you won 50 cents, I probably might not share that. You know what I mean? I might, but I mean, probably I wouldn't be as excited definitely wouldn't be treated anyone to lunch on that on that because it's like it's not that big a deal so which one is it for you? if you choose not to care about witnessing an evangelism either A you don't believe that you received the gift and then we have a, another problem we need to fix or B it's not that big a deal to you Isaiah chapter 43 look at what God says thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel fear not for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name you are mine. When you pass through the waters I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Dot 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 He keeps on going. And then at verse ten he says, You are my witnesses. I want you to see how God works. He doesn't say, Go witness to me and tell people stuff, and maybe I'll bless your life. Look what he says. He says, I created you. I formed you. I redeemed you. I called you. You are mine. I protect you in the waters. I protect you in the rivers. They won't overflow you. I protect you from the fire. You won't be burned. And you won't be scorched. I'm Lord your God. I'm the Holy One. I'm your Savior. Go tell somebody. See, the order is very significant. I would agree with you. Don't care about witnessing. If God has done nothing for you, I agree. Don't tell anyone anything. Sit in your room, care about yourself, that's fine. If God's done nothing for you, if God hasn't blessed you, God hasn't sanctified you. And God doesn't give himself to you and offer himself up in body and blood every Sunday here on the altar. If God has never answered any of your prayers and God has never done anything good for you in life, I agree. Keep your mouth shut. But if God has done anything and you appreciate what God has done, it's your duty to be a witness. Not a preacher. Not a Bible waver, But a Witness. I've got to be an evangelist to show my appreciation for what God has given me. And the second reason why I must be an evangelist, to show my love for God himself. Not just for what God has given me, but to show my love for him. How does evangelism show my love for God? And I want to say this. I want to say that evangelism shows your love for God More than just about anything else in the world. I don't want to say more than anything, but just about more than anything else in the world. Evangelism shows your love for God. Why? Why? How can I say that? Why not like praying and fasting? Why not like uh, giving? Why does evangelism show how much I really, really, really love God more than anything else? There's a, uh, a, a prayer a commandment that's given in the wedding ceremony when we do a wedding okay? in the wedding we talk about we talk about to the husband do this 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 and this one of the things that we tell the husband that you should always do always hasten y'all know this one? Mm -hmm. always hasten to gladden gladden her heart right? that's what it says it's in your handout, did I put it in your handout? what does it say? always hasten to do that which will gladden her heart Okay always hasten to do that which will gladden her heart. I love that. Because what that says is, my job as a husband is not just to do the bare minimum, paid the bills, I picked up milk at the grocery store, leave me alone. Okay, It was never in the contract that I have to get you a cup of water in the middle of the night. Okay, That was never in the deal. But look, if I love somebody, and I see that this would make them so happy, then it is my greatest delight to do this. Agree? Not I have to do this, but like I don't have to do this. But you know what? I know this will make her so happy. So you know what? I want to do this because I want to make her happy. Because I'm happy when she's happy. I want to love God more than I more than I know this sounds. I want to love God more than I love my wife. I want to love God more than I love my wife, and I want to make God's heart happy more than I even want to make my wife's heart happy. And I want to look up at my God and say, God, what can I do to make you happy? And that. Like, you know, the whole, your wish is my command? Like, really? Like, you, you just tell me what it is you want. I'll do it. What makes God's heart so happy? What makes God's heart so happy? Money? Going to church on Sunday. That's what it is. God likes big churches with lots of people. What does God like? What is there more rejoicing in heaven over one what? What? one lost sheep who comes back, one soul who repents, one person who doesn't know me to know me. Nothing makes God's heart happier. So if you are going to say God, and you're going to say all the right words, I love you, Uh, uh, you're number one, I surrender, like you say all the right words, but then God is saying, this makes me more happy than anything else, and you don't care? Not even you're not good at it, but you don't care? Like if my wife says, the most important thing to me in the world is this, This is the most important thing to me. I don't care about anything. I care about this. Nothing else matters. This. And then I'm over here and I don't care. And I say, but I did that and I did that and I did that. I don't even care. Like if I'm not good at it, okay, but at least I care. And At least I have to try. I got to do something. I can't just not care and then say, I love you, sweetheart. What's I love you, sweetheart? Care about what I care about. How can you tell me you love me and then my kids, I say, help my kids. You say, I don't care about your kids. Okay, well then you don't care about me. Don't tell me that you love me you do anything for me and then you don't care about my kids. How are you going to see my kid in the middle of the street about to get hit by a car and you say, well, I don't care. You do nothing. You do nothing then you hate me because you don't care about the most painful thing in the world for me to see something bad happen to my son. If you watch my son get hit by a car and you don't do nothing about it, you can't say that you love me. You can't say that you care. And nothing makes God's heart break more than when His children are far away from Him. They don't know Him. Especially when they haven't even heard about Him. Or they're confused, or or they're sad, or they're discouraged. We sit here, we do nothing, we don't even care. If we understood how God looks at people, especially people that are away from Him, sinners, lost people, it would change our view of evangelism. It doesn't become an option. Let's go a little History 101 here let's go a little story of God and man one on one just to break it down just so you understand just so we're all on the same page in the beginning God created man there's man, there's God everyone's happy everyone's happy because man and God are living together freely there's full communion with one another this is how it was made to be is that I walk freely in the garden we hang out together you obey me, we have fellowship we have intimacy, life is good and then Sneaky little guy snuck in the garden and into her ear and then she into his ear. Next thing you know, apple in the stomach, sin in the world. And the situation became very bad because a wall got put between God and man. And God said, this is the saddest day of my life. You know why? Because my son and my daughter, who I love, you guys have to leave. I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay. You chose to leave. You have to leave. You're now outside those doors. Sorry. And we gotta put two angels, cherubim at the door, guard it. Not make sure they don't get back in. I want them to be in. I created them to be in. But they had to leave. Doors closed. Here I am, I'm God. I say, you know what? That experiment with the humans didn't work out so well. Back to the drawing board. What should I do next? Maybe I'll create me some like robots. Maybe I'll create some, like, super animals. Maybe we'll hang out with them. And God said, you know what? I really like those humans. They were, they were pretty cool. I like them. Let's give them another chance. And the angel said, no, nah, no, nah, nah, God. Those guys, they don't know what they're doing, man. They had it made. They blew it. Don't give them another chance. God said, one more chance, one more chance, one more chance. This is, like, this is the limitless acceptance of God. This is the mother side of God that I spoke about several weeks ago. It's like, okay, one more chance, one more chance, one more chance. Okay, send them uh, the law. Tell them, send them law. Okay, Moses, the prophets, they'll, they'll figure it out. They didn't figure it out. Okay, okay, one more chance, one more chance. Send them Joshua. Send them some judges. Send them, send them uh, uh, David. Uh, David, no, when we send David, David will solve the problem with them. No, David didn't solve the problem. Send them Elijah. Send them some prophets, Jeremiah, some of those guys. Send them three or four of them. None of them worked. Okay, God. This is what the angel saying. Okay, God, the experiment's over. These guys have failed and failed and failed and failed. Let's move on. Let's build the robots. <laughs> God said, "You know what? One more chance. One more chance. How about this? How about I come? We you mean you, God, come. Well come. You want a job done right? You got to do it yourself." <laughs> so God did the unthinkable. Creator of the universe came down was born as a tiny little baby in a tiny little manger and all the angels when he went down there took a collective <clears throat> God is down there like a little baby like God is down there like a little baby remember a few weeks ago we talked about the bigness of God for those of you here a couple weeks ago about the galaxies and the galaxies and the bigness of God all of that bigness of God which we don't know nothing about was a tiny little baby in his tiny little stinky little manger with some funny little cows and pigs and all that kind of stuff and people just walking right by him like as if there's nobody right there and they're just walking right by him and that's God that's like the Almighty God and people had no idea and some guy kicked sand in his face and the angels wanted to be like don't go near him this is God came down to So everyone held their breath what's gonna happen he lived on this earth for 33 years and I always say dying on the cross I'm not saying it was easy. Of course, it was very difficult. But I think the most difficult was the first 33 or 30 years especially when he lived as a nobody, as a poor son of a carpenter, which is a nobody, as a peasant, as a whatever. And people would look at him in line in the supermarket and be like, back up, buddy. And people would cut in front of him in traffic. And people would spill their coffee on him. And if it was me, I wouldn't be like, I'm God. Back up. Back up. I'm God. And he kept his mouth shut and he lived a sinless life. And all of that sinless life was for one reason. So that he could build a bridge back to heaven. Back to the communion. Back to the intimacy. He did all that so that he could build the bridge back to where we belong. All of, all of history, all of history is God telling a story about how I want a bridge between me and you. And I'll do anything it takes to get a bridge between me and you, because I'm too sad for you to be far away. That's why God did everything that he did. And now that is done. The bridge has been built. Anyone, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, doesn't matter, has free access to the Father through the Son with the Spirit. Who's going to share that? A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know what it is, how to get it, how it's supposed to look like, why I need it. A lot of people don't know that information. Who's going to share it? I'll give you an example that I've given before in sermons and it's a real example it's a powerful example but it's real I have a friend who's about my age who has multiple sclerosis okay, MS, horrible disease if you know anyone who has this it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing okay it's a debilitating disease you know what debilitating means it means you watch them deteriorate in front of your eyes like you see the person and then every week it like debilitates their muscles so every week The time you see them, they become a little bit more frail. Like a a picture of what they used to be, but just smaller, weaker. The speech becomes slurred speech. The mind may be sharp, but the muscles can't keep up. Every time I go visit this person, I'm always like, it's tough to see somebody who's my age, okay, living this kind of way but what I've always said is I give a ton of credit to this guy he's very very strong in faith, very strong in faith more strong than me and you, head is always up, spirits are always up more power to him but it's his mom that's the toughest because this is a mother who's watching her son debilitate right in front of her eyes never even get married like he was a good degree whatever it is, I don't think he ever worked because he started to come down while he was in graduate school This is a mother who's just watching her son like wither away in front of her. Can you imagine, let's think hypothetically, that tomorrow you discover the cure for MS. You discover it, you are the man. You're NIH, Johns Hopkins, Harvard combined. And you discover, boom, this pill solves it. And I say, hey, that's great. My friend needs this. And you say, well, I don't know if I want to share it. <laughs> I don't know. Let me pray about it first. Or um, it's going to be kind of awkward for me to, like, I'm not very comfortable. And I don't want to, like, intrude on him. And he may be busy. And I don't want to be offensive. Offensive? You got the cure him for the disease that's killing him? Okay, forget about him. You're gonna look his mom in the eyes. You look his mom in the eyes at the funeral, and you're gonna say, "I had the thing that could have solved all your son's problems, but I didn't want to give it to him." You got guts to do that? I don't got those guts. That's exactly what we do to God. That's exactly what we do to God. How do you gonna look God in the eye and say, "God, I had the cure. I could have saved all these people." from breaking your heart more than anything else. But I just, ah, I was busy. Ah, I didn't want to, it was uncomfortable for me. You got guts to do that? You're a braver man than I am. You're braver than St. Paul too. This was the Pauline epistle that we read today. 1 Corinthians 9.16. St. Paul said, If I preach the gospel, may I have nothing to boast of? For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He said, I'm not doing anything. Don't tell me, great job preaching the gospel. What what do you mean preaching the gospel? I'm saying if I have a cure for AIDS, I tell people about it because that's my duty. Look, if someone today discovered a cure for AIDS or cancer, let's go cancer because that affects more people. Uh, If someone has a cure for cancer today and they decide not to share it, what would you say we should do to that person? What do you think we should do? I'm in favor of tar and feather. That's what I say. We should beat that person silly. If that person refuses to give up the cure for something that has affected so many people, something bad should happen to that person. you understand in front of God? And you have the cure? What do you expect God's going to say to you? Look, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. We all struggle and it's tough for all of us. And I'll share about how it's tough for me more than anyone else. What I'm saying is we have to at least care. It's difference between, like, um, uh, it's tough for me versus I don't care. That's why I said there's no such thing as a mission church. Don't ever say mission church. Don't say a, a, a missionary like I'm a missionary or event. don't. We're all, if you're a Christian, you're mission. There's no such thing as a church without mission. There's no such thing as a Christian without mission. A Christian without mission is a Christian who doesn't care about God. But then you're not a Christian. I hope more than anything else that you care. Because there are two parts of the evangelism process. There's the desire and then the how-to. We, because we don't understand the how-to, we say, okay, then we won't do it. But really what we're doing is we're using the how-to as an excuse because we don't have the desire. We say, well, we don't know the how-to, so therefore we stay away from me. Look, forget about the how-to. I'll talk about the how-to in one minute. The how-to is 5% of evangelism. The desire is 95%. Believe me. The greatest evangelists are not people who had years and years of training. It's people who have years and years of desire and love God so much. And I always say, people say, does evangelism become easier with time? I don't believe that it does. But I believe what does become easier with time or what gets more with time is my desire to please God becomes greater with time. It's not that it becomes easier for me to talk to somebody that I don't know. That's always difficult. But my love for God and my desire to please Him grows with time. And that's what makes it I, should, I don't want to say easier, but it makes it more happy, happen more. The how-to, simple. Acts 1.8. Don't complicate evangelism, please. Don't think it as something very, very... We, we complicate it because we don't want to do it. We want to make it something big, so that way we have an excuse not to do it. Evangelism is simple. Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So it starts off with, I'm going to give you all the resources that you need. So don't, don't tell me I'm weak or I'm stupid or nothing like that. I give you power. And then you shall just be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. It says it very, very simple. Just be a witness. Tell me if there's any lawyers here, judges here. To be a judge, very high. To be a lawyer, very high. To be a witness, what criteria is needed? What do you need to be a witness? Lawyers. Okay, other than citizenship. I was going, okay, so citizenship is one. I was going to say, you don't need nothing. You need to be alive. Okay, if you're alive, you've got eyes that work, and you have a mouth that works, you can be a witness. Okay, and the citizenship would be valuable as well. Okay? <laughs> but leave aside the citizenship. Oh, we'll go citizenship of heaven. That's what we'll go with. Okay, we'll make that spiritual. Okay? Citizenship of heaven. You need to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, just as I had prepared. Okay? And you just need to have eyes to work and the mouth to work. You don't need to be smart. You just need to be able to say, uh, on this day, I was at this street and that car hit that car. Glory be to God forever. Amen. <laughs> That's a witness. It doesn't take a degree, it does not complicated. You don't need to know. I just drew you a picture with stick figures, okay, and smiley faces, okay? It's not anything complicated. You don't need years and years of training. The training is good. I'm not saying don't get training. But what I'm saying is, the sticking point isn't the training. The problem isn't that we have people that have desire, but they don't have the training. The problem is we have people who don't care. People who are not doing nothing. It's not, that we, it's not that we lack the skills. It's that we lack the desire, and we lack the love, and we lack the care. I love when Jesus tells them, Start in Jerusalem. Start in Jerusalem. You know why he says start in Jerusalem? We over-spiritualize this one and we make this say stuff that doesn't mean to say. Why does he say start in Jerusalem? Because that's exactly where they're standing right now. Don't make this complicated. Don't think this means something. This means, if they were standing in Fairfax, he would have said, start in uh, Fairfax. And then what after? Then go to um, Loudoun. And then what, Lord? Check out the rest of Virginia and go all over the states. Okay, and we would make it something ultra-spiritual? It's not. He's saying, you're standing in Arlington? Arlington's a good place to start. You stand in Baltimore? Give Baltimore a shot. Wherever you're standing. You say, don't complicate evangelism. It's just being a witness. It's just standing up and say, "Uh, I'm not very smart, but this is how I used to live? Then God did this for me? Now, the best thing in the world is God. I love God. God is the best. God is number one. That's all it is. Say, I used to have this. I found God. He gives me this. That's it. Simple. Don't complicate how, don't complicate where, don't complicate when. Your feet are in Arlington, do it in Arlington. Your feet move to Herndon, go do it in Herndon. Your feet are in the office, do it in the office. Your feet are on a basketball court or in a 5K run, do it there. How? Because I'm not talking about preaching. I'm not talking about bringing others to Christ. I'm saying bring Christ to others everywhere that you go. If I talk about technique or the how-to of witnessing I believe there's only one skill and it's not even really a skill as much as it is like a there's only one thing that you need you don't need brains you don't need training you need one thing anyone guess? you need a willingness to leave your comfort zone This is the hardest part, like, let's be honest. Sometimes we have the desire, we know what to say, but the hardest part is stepping outside of my comfort zone. True story. Just happened to me yesterday. As I mentioned before, I was in South Carolina. I went on Friday. I went Friday, like, late afternoon, early evening. Spent the night there. Woke up early in the morning and took a flight right back. Quick turnaround. I was there for very few hours. And the time that I was there, I stayed up till like, 1 o'clock in the morning. Okay, I had to get up the next morning at 7. 1 o'clock in the morning, you guys know me, in my terms, 1 o'clock in the morning is very, very late. Okay, I don't stay up to 1 o'clock in the morning. I don't know what 1 o'clock in the morning looks like. Okay, I'm in bed by 9, 10 at the latest. That's the way I am. 1 o'clock in the morning to me is excruciatingly painful. That's okay. That's all right. That's the service. That's fine. Up early the next morning, I'm getting back on a plane. Oh, and the other thing, is me on a plane is not a good situation. If you've flown next to me, I'm the worst person, okay? Because even though I'm a priest and I'm a man of God and I'm all that kind of stuff, I'm terrified, okay? I sweat like there's no tomorrow, and I'm sure I smell as well, but like I can, like I can wring out my shirt with the sweat. My knees, my back, I can't get comfortable. I hate flying. My stomach is upside down. Like, it takes a toll on me physically, and it makes me even more tired. Here I am, Friday. Friday morning, I was up earlier in the morning guys. I usually stayed up to 1 o'clock in the morning, all that kind of stuff. Get up early the next morning. I get on a plane on Saturday morning. I have two things that I want to accomplish on the plane. Planes for me, I try to accomplish stuff, keep myself busy. A, I want to sleep because I'm exhausted. B, I want to work on preparing for today. I haven't prepared my talk fully, I want to work on preparing this talk. I get on a plane. I sit and it's one of those dinky little planes, so it's like I'm the aisle, then there's a window right there. So I sit down on my plane and I got my laptop ready, I'm gonna fall asleep at the beginning, it's an hour and a half flight, I'm gonna fall asleep, 40, I'm gonna wake up and work for 40. That'll be the best. Got my laptop and I want to sleep. And then just as the plane is filling up, somebody sits next to me. And if I tell you, remember how I told you I'm a judgmental person? If I tell you how I judged this person when he walked in and sat next to me, he was this. In my mind, young punk kid. Earrings and the hair. And I thought he was probably like 16, 17 years old. He's got the headphones and he's just like a mess. Like he's a mess. You know the people who are just a mess when they fly? Like when I fly, I got my stuff organized. I put this, You know what I mean? This guy's a mess and he's knocking stuff. And he's, I'm like, oh man, I got to sit next to this guy. That's okay. I'm just going to pretend I'm sleeping. and I hope he doesn't say anything. To this punk kid. Not only that, we sit down. I am a rules follower. There are rules, followers, and rule breakers, okay? And I quickly identify him as a rule breaker. The announcement comes on, turn off your phones. I pull out my phone, I turn it off. That's the rule. He is still listening to his music, and I want to be like, don't call attention to us. Like, I already got enough people looking at me, especially on a flight to DC. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't need any more attention follow the rules buddy you look like that I look like this follow the rules (laughs) not only does he not turn it off the lady comes and says turn it off he says okay she walks back this way he still hadn't turned it off and she says I said turn it off and he said I'm just going to put it on airplane mode I'm like everyone knows you can't say that like you can't she says turn it off and she's like sorry sir the FAA and he's like what's the big deal about airplane mode I'm like oh man I'm in for it (laughs) I'm totally judging this guy Judging left and right and judging and judging and judging. We take off. I don't know how the conversation started. I think it started with, What are you? (laughs) That's usually my my conversations go on planes. And believe me, as soon as he said, What are you? I felt this nudge in my spirit. And I wanted to tell God, God, make him shut up. (laughs) So, I can sleep. Or I can work. I don't need to sleep. I can work. Or I can sleep. I can do either one. But I don't want to talk to this guy because that's a total waste of my time. What are you? I'm a priest. What are you? And then we start this conversation. Long story short, we spoke for the entire plane ride, hour and a half. We spoke about matters of eternity and salvation. This young punk kid asked me if he could confess on the plane, and that was my very first plain confession the irony in it all and, I, and I'm telling you God has such a sense of humor God has such a sense of humor and God loves to stick it to me and go like I got you." I'm like God I want to talk to this guy I'm like God I gotta work I gotta prepare and God's like what's the topic you're preparing tomorrow? I'm like evangelism <laughs> <laughs> and God's like For me, speaking isn't hard. It's the pretending that I'm awake is the hard. It's the putting down my laptop that's the hard. It's the going out of my comfort zone. It's that first step. It's that, look, if I told you, you're going to sit next to a guy on a plane, and he is in dire need of the Word of God, and he needs to hear just anything from the Bible, and I tell you, he's receptive, and he is this, and he's all ears, and he's all yours. Say, okay, I can do that. I can do that. But that's the, that's, not, that's the easy way. The hard part is, you're sitting, everything is normal, and you feel that nudge, you kind of nudge the Holy Spirit back, and He nudges you, and you kind of nudge it back. And it's that first step, that like, what's your name, you know what I mean, like, what, where are you, like, it's that first step, that willingness to lead the comfort zone, but I promise you, if you do that, He's already promised, I'll give you power, He's already said, I will give you in that very hour what you ought to speak, don't worry about what you're going to say, I'll tell you what you ought to say. Don't worry about where the power is going to come from. I'll give you the power. I just need from you the willingness. The bottleneck on evangelism is never the hearer. The bottleneck on evangelism is the speaker. We have this idea, just like I had, that this punk kid, the last thing he wants to talk about is God. And that couldn't have been more wrong. Even though he's not a church guy. Like, don't let me, let me, me mislead you here. He's not a church guy. Like, our conversation, even his confession, was peppered with four-letter words all over the place. And he said them very, very at ease. In the confession, he's saying them. And I'm, still waiting, I'm waiting for him to say, like, and don't you want to say bad words? But he never said that. <laughs> like, this is not a God person... And this guy was telling me some crazy stuff that he's into and he's believed in all this kind of stuff. Well, what I'm saying is, we think that people don't want to talk about God. I promise you, follow me around for a day. People want to talk about God. People do. This plain thing happens to me all the time. Like, I'm I'm sure I've told this story before because it's happened many times before. People want to talk about God. The only people who don't want to talk about God is who? Us. The only people who don't want to talk about God is us. Go find statistics. They'll tell you. And the statistic that I always remember, this was a few years back, so I don't know if it's still accurate, but I mean, the principle is still true. The statistic was that in the United States of America, 65 million Americans don't go to church every Sunday. And of those 65 million Americans that were polled, or the poll said that 65 million Americans don't go to church, more than 50% of them, 33 or 34 million of them said they would go if someone invited them. You know what that statistic says? Shame on us. Shame on us. Half the people in this country who don't go to church said, yeah, if somebody invited me, I'd probably go. Shame on us. We invite people to movies. We invite people to watch TV shows. We invite people to eat food. We invite people to all kinds of stuff. And then we have the gift of God. And we say, no, 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 we don't want to invite them. We don't want to be intrusive. We don't want to be offensive. That's not the truth. The truth is we just don't want to do it. We don't want to leave our comfort zone. At St. Timothy and St. Athanasius Church, God is challenging us to leave our comfort zone. And He's challenging us individually, one by one, name by name, to leave our comfort zone and to bring Christ to every person that we meet. And specifically, as a church, we will bring Christ to Arlington. We will. Arlington may reject Him, may reject us. But in the end, when all of us make it up there, it won't be that we we didn't try our hardest. It won't be that we didn't bring Christ. I told you that we're defining our core values. We're defining our members. Okay, That's what this is all about, is defining who we are. At St. Timothy's Church, we want people who love God so much and are in love with God so much that they can't help but tell everyone they know. Not, again, you may not have the gift of preaching. But there's no such thing as a husband who loves his, loves his wife so much and nobody knows about it. No such thing. If I love my wife, you'll know I love my wife. Even if I don't tell you, I don't preach it, you'll see it in my eyes. You'll see it in my interaction with her. You'll hear it in my stories that I tell. You'll know I love my wife. And no such thing as a person who loves God and loves God so much and nobody in the world knows about it except them and God. That ain't real love. That ain't real love. If I tell my wife, I love you so much, don't tell anybody that we're together. That ain't real love. That don't fly. At St. Timothy and St. Athanasius Church, our one of our core values is a personal call to evangelism. We believe that the call to evangelism and witnessing applies to us just as much as it did to the apostles in the early church, and God will hold me accountable to its completion. I want to end by talking about this last sentence accountable to its completion. When Jesus gave a command to preach the gospel to every creature, I'm part of that command. Again, I'm not responsible for every piece of the transaction but I am certainly responsible for my piece. And my piece may be just this small little piece, this small little city, this small little neighborhood, but I am 100% responsible for this piece and doing this piece of the pie. Again, a statistic for you. In the United States of America, in 2011, 2.7 million Americans died in 2011. So we can say 2.7 will die in 2012. I don't know I would say that a good number of them are not going to end up on the right side of heaven and hell it's not me being judgmental it's me being biblical because the Bible says there's two roads to life there's one that's small and narrow and few people find it and there's one that's big and wide and many people find that one Bible says that many people are not going to know this road and many people are going to miss this road And in this country, 2.7 million people every year are going to die. And I'm not saying, what are you going to do about all 2.7 million? What I'm saying is, do you care? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to do anything? Because if you sit back in your chair, drink your coffee and say, you're not going to do nothing? I question how much you love God. And I question your appreciation for God. you have the guts to look me in the eye after watching my son get hit by a car and watching idly and tell me i love you how can i be of service to you you have the guts to come to my house and tell me that you have the guts to stand before god on the judgment day and say those words one of the thoughts that I think about it's a scary thought is that judgment heaven like eternity here we are standing here with God and it's like our turn to see God and I'm not questioning anyone's salvation I'm not saying God's going to send you to hell I'm not saying it like that okay? I'm not saying it like that I'm saying you're going to stand here in heaven and you're going to look and you're going to look on the other side and you're going to see people let you know that you didn't say nothing to. And you're going to see them there. And they can't cross over. And you're going to look in Jesus' eyes. What do you think he's going to be thinking? First, let's go to them. What are they going to be thinking as they see you over there? You knew? Why didn't you say something? How come you didn't tell me? You knew about this and about that? You didn't say anything? Why? You knew? You didn't? That's going to be the look in their eye. That's not as bad as looking the look in his eye. As he sees his kids down there. What are you going to say? That's a scary thought, isn't it? Let me flip it now. Because I like to end always on a happy note, not a sad note. I'm a smiley face guy. Now let's say you're up here and that person is here. And that person comes and gives you the biggest hug thank you so much because if it wasn't for you I'd be there thank you so much and then that person leaves you and goes and gives Jesus the biggest hug in the whole wide world says Jesus it's because of him that I'm here and then you go to Jesus what's that look in his face gonna look like is that look in his face? Remember last week I told you about one of my favorite verses in Matthew 25, 21? Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. Come and be made ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That face, that face of thank you so... That face of you saved my son from getting hit by a car in the street. Look, this is my house. It's yours. Take whatever you want. You, you jumped in the street... You grabbed my son, you brought him safely. You want my money? Take my money. What is it you want? Tell me what you want. It's yours. Like, what price am I going to put on my son? Like, if you save my son, you want my car? Take my car. You You want my... Take it. Like, whatever. Whatever it is you want, it's yours. That's what's going to be the look on Jesus' face. I'm going to leave you with this verse. Matthew 10, 32. Whoever confesses me before men... Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is going to take this guy and he's going to say, You're the reason that they're here? Come with me. Take you straight up to the Father's throne. Push aside the crowds. Get out the way. Get out the way. This boy, this is the best. And I can only imagine the reward, the eternal reward that the Father has for you in that situation. You see, being an evangelist, you don't got to be a superhero. You don't got to be a scholar. You just got to be somebody who loves God and loves God enough to do something about it and to care about gladdening his heart. And I promise you, I promise you, the reward that God will give to those who show their love through evangelism by bringing Christ to others, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has come upon the heart of man things which God has prepared for those who really love him. Let's stand up for a prayer, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for the great gift of salvation that you have given to us, Lord, and for revealing to us so many things that so many people out there don't know. Lord, you've given us your very self. You've given us the church. You've given us this community here, Lord, where we can come together and we can worship you, and we can learn about you. Lord, You've given us everything that we need to get to the Kingdom. Forgive us Lord for being that selfish kid who just wants to keep it to ourselves. Being that lazy kid who thinks that You just give us stuff so that we can become fat and rich and greedy with it ourselves. Lord, it's scary to us to open our mouths and get out of our comfort zone. But we trust that You will give power as You gave power to the early church. You gave them power to work healing signs and miracles. And most of all Lord, You gave them power to step outside their comfort zone and do that hard thing. I pray, Lord, you give us the same power. You give us that same like desire to please you and to gladden your heart. Forgive us for so many times not caring about your heart, but just caring about our own heart and, and asking you to care about us, but even though we don't care about you. Give us, Lord, to really be a church of evangelism. Really be a church of people who step outside their comfort zone and bring you and bring your love and bring your goodness to every person that we meet. Accept our prayers this day. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.